I kind of go, if these six areas of a business are robust, then you've got a, you're gonna have a great business, okay? They are. So there's marketing, you've gotta get leads, okay? There is sales, i.e. you've gotta convert those leads into paying customers. But then there are operations. How do you actually, how do you actually fulfill those things? Then there's a kind of go, okay, but um, so you've got operations and systems, but then, then there's people. How do you actually, uh, you know, build out a team and build a strong culture? Okay. And then you've got financial, either numbers and the margins and all that needs to make sense. Uh, and then you've got legal and compliance, which is kind of the, the, um, Red-headed, uh, red-haired stepchild of the family that nobody wants to pay attention to, but that's the thing that will torpedo the whole company if you if you don't get that right. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Dirt, sponsored by Orchid Black. I'm your host, Jim Barnish, and today we are going to talk about yet another way to maximize the value of your seven or eight-figure business, and that's via mastermind groups. Our guest today, mastermind ex- expert, Dan Bradbury. My favorite part of this episode is when we go deep into his specialty around mastermind groups and how to leverage them and how to build them and how to get value out of them to increase the value of your business. But before we dig in, if you find value in this episode, share it with someone else that needs to hear it. Spread the wisdom. All right, Dan, welcome to the dirt. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jim. Yeah, absolutely. So just t- talk to us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and and why we should care. Yeah, good question. Uh, well, uh, I, I don't know if you should care. You, you be the judge of that. So um, I was a bit of a strange child. Like probably many of the listeners, I was always very entrepreneurial, always had my hands in everything, wanted to figure out how everything uh, works. And uh, when I was growing up, I always had big ambitions, big dreams. But the problem was, I had no money, right? So I had to earn money, but everything seemed to take too damn long. So I said, okay, how can I earn money more quickly? And uh, a a wise uh, uncle said, Dan, everything you want to do, many people have done before you. I said, okay, well, how can I learn this stuff? And he said, well, they've all written books. And I tend to get a little bit meta. So I read one or two kind of great business biographies and, and found it very useful. But the problem was it took so damn long to read the books. So uh, um, I, I said, you know what? I need to learn to read faster because I can't afford to go on all the courses. I'm only a kid, but I can read books. I can read great business biographies, but it takes too long. How can I consume all this information quicker? Right? Because if you know better, you can do better. Um, and so I took a speed reading course. So I don't even remember the late night infomercials, um, uh, Howard Berg and, uh, uh, mega speed reading. It was called and this infomercial was like, Oh, how to read three times quicker in four hours. And so I stole one of my parents' credit cards and bought this hundred dollar course and did the course. And lo and behold, it did exactly what it promised. It kind of doubled or trebled my reading speed. And, uh, so then I started reading more and more books. But I don't know, Jim, if you're anything like me, but uh, I tend to be a bit obsessive compulsive. Uh, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs have that trait, right? It's like when I get into something, I'm like, I'm all in, like I'll lose the day. You know, it doesn't matter. I don't eat. And um, so I got so into the speed reading. I was like, oh, hold on. How fast is fast? Right? It's like from a business perspective, how big is big? How much profit is too much? Or, you know, like, 
okay, what does that mean? Relative number. And so I got really into the speed reading and did everything that I could to learn how to learn faster. And uh, I ended up the next year entering the speed reading world championships. It does exist. It's not quite as sexy and exciting as it might sound. And, um, uh, and I came sixth and that pissed me off. So I went back the next year and I came third. So in my, uh, when I was about, uh, 19, uh, 20 years old, I, I was the third documented to be the third fastest reader in the world. I don't think that's true. It just meant I came third because again, it's not a massive, competitive, uh, uh, competition. There certainly wasn't any significant prize money. Um, and I just became obsessive about learning in the game of business. And, uh, I then translated that into business, still made plenty of screw ups and near, uh, near bankruptcies, etc. along the way. But, uh, I, I like to think that I accelerated my journey and, uh, a couple of big exits later, acquisitions. All of a sudden, I woke up and I'm now an old man. So that's my that's my story in brief. Yeah, old young man. I like it. I like it. So when you uh, let's talk about selling those companies real quick. So what what were some unexpected challenges that you had as you were both building and exiting those companies? Yeah, I think. Um, when I first got started, I was hopeless because I didn't know how to market and sell, right? So my first business, it was a, a big failure. I actually took the speed reading skills and memory skills that I learned and wanted to teach them. Um, just because it made such an impact on my life and I got a business partner and all this kind of stuff. And despite having some really good stuff and amazing client results, I was unable to translate that into um, uh, profits, right? So the business just struggled and then it failed. And on reflection, I realized that the product by itself doesn't matter. Um, in ISA, I think there are six core areas of business, and I think all six need to work, need to be cohesive. You're only as strong as your weakest link. You know, it's a law of constraints type stuff. And I didn't know how to market and sell. So that was a kind of my early stage business. So I then went off and learned how to market and sell, got really, really good about that. But then the problem flipped. I kind of myopically went, you know what? The way to succeed and make loads of money is to is to be able to market and sell better. Hmm. And I became very, very skilled at marketing and selling, and I made more money, but that only reached a certain point. I hit like an inflection point, a choke point, a constraint around, okay, yeah, but that doesn't help if your product's not good, or that doesn't help if you can't build out a team a team. So like at that stage, my issue was around hiring and leveraging orders of scale. And that kind of jumped me to the next ledge. And then I hit a inflection point, which is I was making a lot of money, but somehow I wasn't able to hang on to any of it. Yeah. Right? I wasn't financially literate. I could manage with a P&L, but all of a sudden it's like, right, you're now high income, but you've got no net worth. Right, because I was still in my twenties and I was young and I was stupid. So you know, I had the Ferraris and the Porsches and the, you know, like all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, I, I it turns out, I no matter how much I could make, I could always spend more. Right. So there's been a few kind of different phases, but the way I see it, it's always in the six areas, and it's kind of like going up a mountain. Like you get the same view, but from a higher perspective. All problems come back to these six categories, but depending on the stage of size and growth of your business. It's a different um, quality of problem. So when when you look at some of these experiences that obviously shaped your current approach 
to business and in selling to businesses and now helping other business owners, you know, what are, what are some of the biggest things that you tell people in your programs or that you're meeting with to look out for? I think, um, I think there's a lot of bullshit out there and people get lost in the minutia around selling companies and get into clever little tricks and tactics. Um, uh, I think the secret, if you want to have a valuable, uh, a significant exit is to build something that's really worth a lot, right? Uh, paraphrasing Charlie Munger, you know, um, it's if you want to get more, deserve more. Um, you know, the world's not a crazy enough place to, to reward a whole bunch of undeserving people, right? And, and so how yeah. do you build a business that's really, really, really robust? Yes, you can grow through acquisition. Yes, you can, you can do all kinds of, um, I'm actually going to say strategies or tactics to help support that. But fundamentally, it's, the game is how do you drive business value? Like, I mean, I, I wrote, um, I felt that there was not a lot of simple stuff that can be applied to business owners that are looking to scale. It was all MBA, overly complicated intellectual bullshit. Um, uh, but I, I think that if you just take a common sense approach to what are the key drivers of what Warren Buffett would say is intrinsic value, what really makes this company a robust cash producing machine, and you go from first principles, then uh, you're light years ahead of the competition. And what, and when you say these, these first principles, um, like what the pillars under there, I know you mentioned six things. What are those six things that, that you pay attention to? Yeah. So, um, think about it this way. I like to have frameworks for everything like, um, uh, you know, or mental models. So, uh, uh, a framework that, so let's talk about the six areas, uh, I kind of go, if these six areas of a business are robust, then you've got a, you're going to have a great business, okay? They are. So there's marketing. You've got to get leads, okay? There is sales, i.e. you've got to convert those leads into paying customers. But then there are operations. How do you actually, how do you actually fulfill those things? Then there's a kind of go, okay, but um, so you've got operations and systems, but then, then there's people. How do you actually, uh, you know, build out a team and build a strong culture? Okay. And then you've got financial, either numbers and the margins and all that needs to make sense. Uh, and then you've got legal and compliance, which is kind of the, the, um, redheaded, uh, redhead stepchild of the family that nobody wants to pay attention to. But that's the thing that will torpedo the whole company. If you, if you don't get that right. Or I don't know a single business, Jim. I cannot name a business. Uh, that is um, uh, of decent size, profitable, and um, scalable, is uh, prevalent, is pervasive over time, that is not strong in all of those six areas. But I can tell you, if you look at any big companies that have failed, they've had a shocking weakness in at least one of those six areas. Right? So it's not so much about how strong is your strongest thing. You're only as strong as the weakest link. So I'm constantly circling around these areas and doing kind of an analysis, right? So here's, here's a fun example. There's loads of workplaces you can do this, but I built a little quiz. Um, so it's a, it's a slightly different methodology than the six that I just spoke about, but it's the same framework. How do you make a valuable company? And I wrote about it in my book, Turnover is Vanity, Profit is Sanity. 
And uh, but people can go and do a scorecard, denbrobby.com. Uh, you can do the business profit maximization scorecard, which scores your business. It's a bit more micro, so it's not six areas. It actually does 10 different areas, but it's it's the same, just a slightly different lens. I've evolved my thinking over time to make it cleaner. And it will score you in these 10 different areas. But the question is not, oh, how do you make this area, which is ten out, 9 out of 10, how do you make it 10 out of 10? It's how do you take the areas that are 2s and 3s out of 10 and strengthen those weakest links? Because at the end of the day, it's called your net profit for for a reason, Jim. It's your net of all your wins and your losses, right? So like, how do I avoid screwing up? Because when you screw up, that's what costs you money. So in, in this in this way of thinking, whether it's six, six uh, divides or, or ten, um, when you look at a business, is this kind of um, – you know, how you see business owners looking at their own business, or is there a lot of education that comes with getting them to kind of divide up their business into core qualities and attributes around what's going to increase the value of the business? Meaning, are they naturally thinking about this from what you've seen, or is there a lot of education that comes with this? Uh, it's naturally the exact opposite. Look, it, um, uh, I think it was Earl Nightingale who said, you know, in the absence of strategy, observe the masses and do the opposite. Right. So I don't know what the, what the mathematics work out to be in the US, but I bet you they are not dissimilar than the UK. Okay. In the UK, there's about six million, uh, uh, limited companies, privately held, uh, companies that are incorporated. And of that six million, it is, um, let me get the number right in my head. Uh, 93 or 94% never reach seven figures in revenue one time. That means ever at any point in the history do they hit seven figure. So already you're down to six or seven percent of businesses that even reach seven figure revenue. That's not profit. Right. Now there's not public data on the profit, but it's believed to be 0.3-0.4% of companies ever hit seven figure profits. Right? So you're gonna go so logically, if you want to succeed, don't do what everybody else does. In fact, my joke when I take people through the kind of the scorecard and the quizzes, I say, okay, I'm going to ask you some questions. If you don't know the answer, think what the most, would most small business owners choose and choose the opposite and you'll be right. Uh, because they don't think that way. Most people fail. Different analogy. Look around you. Most people are fat. They're obese. They're unhealthy. So, like, if you want to get um, fitter, more healthy, observe what they eat, how they exercise and do the opposite, right? Most people aren't exercising, they're eating processed sugars and shit. So if you eat, uh, natural, uh, uh natural whole foods and you exercise a bit, <laughs> holy, holy crap, you're going to be completely, and it, it's not dissimilar with business, right? You know, so the most base level, the first question, uh, Jim is, okay, Simplistically, I think people overcomplicate it. There's 42 different ways. If you go to Harvard Business School, I think in their um, syllabus, there's a book they recommend on business valuation, and there's 42 different ways to value a company. Okay, fine. We can talk about those, and they have different merit. But for most of us listening to this podcast with small businesses, it's like, well, just get to the root. The purpose of the business is to get a return for the shareholders. Okay, so I need it to make a profit. So the most simplistic valuation method is going to be the profit times by some multiple, right? Like that's what you're paying for the goodwill of the business. It's like this business is going to get me a return. 
And the higher the multiple is going to be dependent upon scalability, uh, how quickly it's grown and or risk, right? But so you kind of go, okay, you got the profit and the multiple, the two key drivers of business valuation. Okay, profit and the multiple. They're the two, they're the two metrics that'll make up the valuation. Right? Okay. Where do most small business owners want to focus? If I said it was mutually exclusive, Jim, we can either grow the profit or we can grow the multiple. Where would most small business owners want to focus their attention? Of course, on valuation. Well, I, I think smart business owners are thinking about growing the multiple, but most small business owners, so the typical small business owner, will say, I want to grow the profit because they don't even know what the multiple is, right? I, I, again, I'd be curious if, if your experience of that is different in the UK, but my experience of business owners uh, in the USA, my experience of business owners in the UK is most of them don't even know what their profit is, Jim. Right. The majority, they, they yeah. don't understand their P&L. They just go, oh, that's accounting stuff. I don't get that. That's for the accountants to figure out. And so they've got no idea. So they can't focus on growing the multiple because they don't even know what that construct is. So there's a massive piece. And you're going to go, OK, let me say it a different way. OK, uh, if you if the multiple is strong, just think of it as your business is robust. It's bulletproof. It's never going broke. Right. You can make a million pounds in profit next year. But if there's a 95 percent chance you're going to go broke in the following 12 months, do you want that business? Of course you don't. Like, I'd rather have a business that's only making half a million in profit per year. But there's a 99 percent chance it's going to be around in 10 years time. Right. That's how we get that's how we get rich, not having to go and build another company again. And, and, and so. That was a very long-winded answer to, no, you've got to get educated. I don't believe, Jim, anybody is born a business owner. I think people may have natural entrepreneurial tendencies, but can you read a balance sheet? Can you read a P&L? Do you know how to hire staff? Do you get marketing, positioning, lead generation? Of course you pretty well don't. Right. Of course you don't. To think the otherwise is a massive folly, and that keeps you broke. So I know a big part of what you do is is work with CEOs in these seven or eight figure business masterminds, right? Is that is what 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 first of all, what is a mastermind? Let's just start there, and then you know what are the masterminds that you're currently running and with who? Yeah, so look, I, I've got two different formats, and they are slightly different and serve different purposes. Okay, so. The, the, the word mastermind comes from the Napoleon Hill Think and Grow Rich, where you get two or more minds together with a common, singular common purpose, and that it forms a third mind above them, a master mind, right? So you get people that have got the same intention. So in this context, it's people that are business, looking to scale, they're looking to grow, they're looking to expand over time, and then you get, like, we can learn from each other, right? An idiot learns from their own mistakes, a wise man learns from the mistakes of others, Okay, learn vicariously through others. Uh, you don't get paid more money by taking longer to solve the problem, right? You don't take a check. Well, nobody takes checks anymore, but you don't take a check to the bank teller and then you show him or her the check and they go, oh, uh, I'm going to pay you more money because you did this the longer, harder way. Right. It's that, that's not how the game works. Yeah. So we can stand on the shoulders of giants. So that's the purpose of the generic purpose of mastermind. For me, there's two formats. One is kind of a large group format, which is more like lecture theater style. And uh, it's it's teaching learning. So I have, uh, I'm fortunate to have some very, very successful friends, 
you, you know, so um, uh, uh, people that have scaled companies to 100 million plus. Uh, well, I've got one friend who's actually a self-made billionaire, actually, that came and spoke to my group. And it's like, okay, I want to come along and I want to learn. You tell me your lessons about hiring, about firing, about in all these six different areas, right? So it's, it's classroom style. Can we learn from each other? Not just the wins, but the mistakes. So I don't make that mistake. So that, that's kind of like the large group format, and which is mastermind. The next level that I do is board of advisors, which is is boardroom type stuff, which is more. So it's it's groups of four or groups of eight that meets either one day a quarter or two days a quarter, and really their job, Jim, is to come and have a board meeting where they present their business plan to the other members of their group, and the other members of their group rip their plan apart. Right. So if you think about what's the purpose of a boardroom, the purpose of a boardroom is to have people that understand the game of business. You know, if you're in the game of, I don't know, space rockets, they're not all scientists talking sciencey stuff. That's the operational elements. Right. It's about people understanding the game of business, understanding scaling, understanding raising finance, understanding preparing for exit, understanding whatever. Right. Like, so people that just these kind of components, these six areas of business are uh, consistent across any business. And therefore, there's common lessons to learn, how you structure it, margins of safety, a whole whole host of things. And so how can you train yourself not to be a better operator, but a better owner, a better shareholder? Right. That, like, to me, that's the game. You, you can make a lot of money just by being a good operator. Right? Anybody that says you can't is a liar. Um, I hate business coaches or advisors that kind of they have one size fits all. I don't think the world is that simple. Right. There's nothing wrong with being a really great operator. You can make millions uh, and um, or probably even examples of billions. I don't know. Michael Jordan being an example. Right. Like I know he's made money post his retirement from from investments. But look, the vast bulk of the kickstart was the fact that he was a good operator in the game of being a basketball player, right? So so I, I kind of go, uh, you need operating skills, but really, really all the leverage in any industry. If you're a good operator, you can have a good, a good job, high paying job that can make you very rich, but it's still a job. Investors, uh, like the, there's infinite upside scalability there, but you need skill set. You need to develop skill set that doesn't. Nobody walks in being fully skilled, and the only way that I know is to learn. And the best way to learn vicariously through others, and that is where you go. Okay, books, yes, but that's why there's some inherent power from getting many smart individuals in the same room, especially Jim. If they disagree with you, you know, you've heard the cliche, if you're the smartest person in, in the room, you're in the wrong room. But but actually, my favorite conversations are people that on podcasts like this, where they're super smart, but I know they've got fundamental differences of opinions to me on certain areas. Great. Because then you've got to park your ego and go, OK, let's figure out which one of us is right. Which one, what's actually yeah. true? Or the context of why we're both right or we're both wrong, right? I mean, that's, Correct. you know, the worst room to be in is where everyone agrees. Not just not just where you're the smartest person in the room, but even worse when everyone agrees in the room. So, I, yeah, we're uh, we're very aligned in that way of thinking. Yeah, I was just going to think democracy. The, the problem is it, it reverts to the mean, 
right? It reverts to the mean. So don't get me wrong. There's time and context where it's important to get, you know, your management team all on the same page or we're all running in the same direction, etc. So the, the time where like, we don't want to just always disagree, clearly. I know that wasn't your point, but sure. we, uh, we need to have healthy, uh, productive disagreement and then uh, hopefully from a management perspective, come to a conclusion. But unfortunately, a lot of business owners, and I've been guilty of this in the past, try and bring everybody along with us, and then it becomes democracy. But the problem with the democracy is you, you, you're you reverting to the mean. You're reverting to the average of what everybody thinks. So by definition, you can only get average results. If you look at the true outliers, right. the companies that have had exceptional performance over time, every single one of those, without exception, has been immensely unpopular at certain times and with certain decisions. I you only outperform the market. I know this is more like a share um, stock market thing, but it's stock market is just large businesses, right? Um, it, it's when you bet against the market and you're right that is when you win. But fundamentally, oh, you better develop some skills and ability to clarify what's going on and discern. Uh, what the tr- what's true in the situation and make your own independent decision. That's um, and that is something that's easy to say, but it's it's definitely not easy to do. So can you can you share with us a story where uh, one of your mastermind groups uh, or a member of the mastermind group uh, got significant growth or significant shift or change in their business or their business mentality based on being in the room with other business owners? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, I can give you as many as you want. So, one that I'll just go that comes straight to mind when we say that um, is um, let me change his name and whatever, because then I can be more specific about uh, about the business time. So, um, let's call him Mike. So, Mike, uh, Mike was in a um, uh, engineering business, and. Um, and he was, uh, so he was involved. So the, the type of engineering that they did was specific to construction. And, uh, Mike had grown his business and, uh, to, I don't know, three million a year and it was making healthy profits. I'm making this number up, but it was, you know, maybe it was making 300 grand. Maybe it was 500 grand. I don't remember. Let's say, let's say it's 300 grand, just 10% to keep it simple. And he was going, okay, yeah, great. And, uh, uh, but specifically what he did was he was, uh, a recruitment agent. So he would basically pay his contractors to do the engineering work on these building sites. And that's how he made his margin. He found the engineers and he placed them and he made this money. But somewhere along the line, he decided that he wanted to have a, um, uh, a revenue stream B, right? He goes, you know what? I'm placing all these people and they're making all this money on these jobs. I can do those jobs. Anyway, so he, he then had this product line B where he was being the general contractor. He wasn't just placing the engineers. They were doing all the construction as well. And his business scaled rapidly. So he turns up when he joins the program and he's like at 10 million. But he's at 10 million and he's, he's making like 200 grand a year. Like nothing, nothing. And he's in a world of stress. And so we basically really dug into his numbers to make sure we really understood it. And even just now I've described it to you, he wasn't that clear. It kind of evolved and there's a bit of this. And But when we really unpacked it, it's really it's product line A and product line B. And product line A is about half the business, you know, the placing the contractors, 5 million. Product line B, the you know general contractor was half a million. And when we apportioned the expenses, 
right? Again, to be clear, Jim, I'm not talking about accounting function. Like when we really analyzed and said, okay, all the costs you're incurring, Mike, are costs of either acquiring the business, servicing the business, or staying in business, right? Customer acquisition costs, cost of goods sold, or overhead, right? Uh, so uh, let us understand. Now let's put those in column A or column B. And when we went down all this and really forced him to do it and didn't tolerate his bullshit answers of, oh, well, you know, that person does a bit of A and a bit of B. It's like, okay, what does that mean? 90% A, 10% B, inverse, 50-50. When we went through it, lo and behold, we found that um, product line A was doing 5 uh, million revenue and was making half a million in profit, 10% margin. Product line B was 5 million in revenue and losing 300 grand a year. Right? And all of a sudden, it became very obvious, which is he could do half the work and he'd make a lot more money. Right? And so the lesson here, because perhaps I shouldn't have left with that story, or I've not told it in a while, so perhaps I didn't tell it well. But the point is, I like to think about what are principles or frameworks or lenses to which I can filter my business. And I'll give you three, but here's one. One is less is more. Entrepreneurs, unfortunately, we're a breed of people that naturally seize opportunities. And that can be tremendously rewarding until it's not. And when it's not is we've got a tendency as a breed to overcomplicate stuff. And we do more is better. Economies of scale. But actually, that's not what economies of scale means. Economies of scale is do one thing really damn well. But entrepreneurs really struggle with that. And we get distracted and do 763 things. And it doesn't work. So with a lot of my acquisitions, Jim, the core premise has been, how do I make this business profitable by taking away the shit that's a distraction, that's a constraint, or that loses money? Let me give you an example that perhaps makes it more obvious. Whoever's listening to this right now, you probably know in your company, let's say you've got a team of 10 employees. I would argue that there is at least one person on your team that if you fired them, if you let them go, productivity wouldn't go down, it would go up. Right? If the government brought in a law and said, you've got to fire 10% of your workforce tomorrow, or we're going to close your business, right? Everyone would do it because it's the law. And actually, if you listen to this, you probably had an experience in the past where you've let a team member go. And actually, rather than everyone be deflated, it's had the opposite effect. Everybody had been jubilant. Everybody looked at you, Jim, and said, what the bloody hell took you so long? Why the hell didn't you fire them sooner? And then when you think about it, you're going to go, hold on, that person cost me money. I paid them, and actually people are now more productive in their absence, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, I've got five, five salesperson, fire one. Oh, no, you've lost 20% of your sales force. Yeah, but have you lost 20% of your sales? In most cases, that's not true. Those sales still get made right. just over the remaining four. So I kind of go, okay, so less is more. So a lot of people come and go, how do we do more? Do more, do more, do more. And rather than get disproportionate upside, they actually get diminishing returns. Different way of saying this, Jim, in a way that everybody listening has heard of this, the Pareto Principle, right? That, which is also known as, actually, I don't know, do you call it the Pareto Principle in the US? It's got also known as the 80-20 rule, right? So, all right, uh, but people don't regressively analyze their business. I love doing this. Number of clients, I get them and go, right, okay, 
80% of your profits, and lo and behold, it's been made from 20% of the customers or 20% of the product lines or whatever, 20% of the locations. And often it's disproportionate. Again, it's fractal. So the top 20% of the top 20%, i.e. the top 4%, is making 80% of the 80%. So in other words, 4% of the customers or the locations or the product lines are making 63 64% of the profits. And you're like, holy shit, is there opportunities to just do more of that? And there's not always, Jim, but in a lot of cases there is, right? In fact, if it was that obvious, yeah. you would have done it already. But most people don't look. They just we get blinded by our own beliefs and just kind of go, yeah, no, this is it. It's not. And, and actually, the problem is not the business. The problem is your belief about the business. You believe that oh, we can't scale that section, that whatever, whatever. whatever. So you're going to go. We've had to go to other markets or other product lines, and that belief is costing you a shitload of money. Yep. Well said. On that note, we're going to hop into our founder five. So let's 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 hop right in. So here we go, Dan. Number one is that is, is that code is that code word for I've been I've been talking way too much. No, that's code word that we've got a couple minutes left, so you have to get to your next meeting. So we've got to we've got to hop into the end here. <laughs> so uh, all right, so t- five questions. Number one, uh, key metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on. Okay, uh, for me, for most of my businesses, I love recurring revenue. So MRR is the holy grail. However, there's a close second, and for most businesses, that is way underappreciated, cash. Cash, cash, cash. Turnover is vanity. Profit is sanity. Cash is king. And uh, look, if you're in recession, if you're in good times, uh, I've yet to find myself in any position in live gym where having more cash would have been a disadvantage. And I can already hear some people go, oh, well, no, no, because cash is not the point. It's not getting a return. Well, you know what? Uh, uh, you could say, fine, not cash then. Free cash flow. Free cash flow. Yeah. Because that's the geezer that pays for everything, pays for the acquisitions, etc. So MRR and cash or cash flow. Well said. All right. Uh, top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. The number one tip is to get exceptionally financially literate. Nobody cares more about your money than you do. And I'm not saying that you need to be an accountant. I've never filed a tax return uh, once in my entire life. But um, if you think that you can just find an accountant, if you're not financially literate, you don't know if you've got a good accountant. And the number of business owners that I've seen be screwed, be defraud, made huge mistakes because they, my God, if if you don't, in depth understand to intricate levels of detail your PL, your balance sheet and your statement of cash flow you are making a fraction of the money that you deserve to make and then if you your ambition is to scale and exit um you are going to be significantly hurt or undervalued by ha- the lack of that knowledge well said all right uh favorite book or podcast that has helped you to grow as a ceo uh, well, I've enjoyed this podcast, but but it's my first time, so I I, I can't say that, that uh, uh, whether or not it's helped me grow. Um, uh, yeah, I, well, I suppose I'm biased. The favorite podcast that's made me grow has been my own. So blatant plug. If you just look up the uh, Dan Bradbury podcast, uh, I, I've had some some really heavy hitters on there. But to 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 make it not so self indulgent, uh, my favorite book, which is rarely more than arm's length away from me, just to prove the point, is. Um, uh, the Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. 
Look at that. I've got multiple copies of this book, and they're always dog-eared as this one. So Keith Cunningham, <laughs> he's he's getting older now. Uh, he's based in Austin, Texas, but he's uh, he's an absolute legend. And um, The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. What is a piece of advice that counters traditional wisdom? A piece of advice that counters traditional wisdom is smaller is better. I, I, I think that most people go for scale, scale, scale. I spoke to a business owner this morning that was after, I need to get to 5 million because that means I'll have 1 million of EBIT and that means I'll get the multiple that I want for my exit valuation. But as soon as I poked that a little bit, it's got holes all over the place, right? Because he wants a certain exit valuation because he's got a certain lifestyle ambition and I demonstrated how he could achieve that goal much more radically without all the risk. So smaller is better. I'm not saying don't. I'm in favor of more money, if you're listening to this, to be clear. But actually, if you're operating through a lens of how can I make more profit with less work and less effort, it can't always be done. But if you've not really looked for it, there's often so many low-hanging fruit that you don't even see because you're not looking. Right, and it's the, the difference between total revenue and total revenue per employee, right? It's like, what do you actually want to build towards? Is it just growth or is it efficient and scalable correct, growth? Cor- correct, correct. Well, and it's not even revenue per employee, right? As in th- that, what you said is true, but to go a step further, it's GP. So to a business this right, morning. Probably. Where they're talking about all this revenue, but the, between the different type of things, it's like, what's the gross right. profit? What's the gross profit by job or by right. employee? And you kind of go, holy crap, right? And I, I get the difference between margin and nominal value. Nobody wants a 100% margin business that does $3,000 a year, right? <laughs> but um, I think a lot of times we get lost in this bigger is better, and that is utter yeah. bullshit. I, I, I can name you people that have got companies 10x, my size, 20x my size, that don't make the profit that I make. And I'm not saying that to be self-indulgent. I've got a fraction of the stress, a fraction of the capital tied up, and I've got a mountain of cash. I'm in favor of exiting for a big valuation, but you know what? I'm more in favor of uh, having a machine that is relatively self-sufficient, that just prints out money hand over fist year after year. So smaller is better. All right, last one here. What is going to be the title of your autobiography? Um, uh, good question. Uh, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, which uh, uh, um, it, apparently it's a well, um, well, not apparently, it is a well-known phrase in my house. I, th- I think uh, the more I've done in business, the more nothing surprises me anymore. So in a healthy way, I'm always, I'm getting increasingly obsessed about um, how do you de-risk things? How do you make it more stable, more robust? Um, said a different way, I've read every single page of every single letter to shareholder letter to shareholders that Warren Buffett's ever written. That I mean, that's that, that took me months to do that task. And the, the more I read, any man that's worth over a hundred billion after giving away eighty billion is worth paying attention to. And that man's yeah. got his shit together. How, how do we have high quality? earnings, earnings power, sustainability of earnings. Give me the goddamn moat. So, um, yeah, uh, but to answer your question, are you fucking kidding me? It's normally <laughs> when I've been surprised because there's been some unforeseen risk, and that's my job is to figure out those risks in advance so they don't happen. All right, awesome, dude. Well, you've given a ton to our listeners, Dan, so time for a little bit of self-promotion. How can those listening help you out? 
Uh, thank you. Uh, well, uh, if you've resonated with what I've had to say, uh, and if you're still here, hopefully you have, uh, probably the two things I would suggest you do. Three, one, go to danbradbury.com, do your business profit maximization scorecard. It's a fun test. It'll give you uh, kind of a 20, 24-page document that feeds back how, depending on your answers, how you should improve and strengthen your business valuation. Uh, number two would be subscribe to the Dan Bradbury podcast, wherever podcasts are. Uh, lots of interviews like this. I'm normally the interviewer, so me and Jim switch places. Um, and then the third one is I've got a couple of different books on Amazon, um, uh, Breeding Gazelles, uh, uh, Fast Growth Strategies for Your Business, and Turnover is Vanity, Profit is Sanity, Nine and a Half Steps for Improving Your Profits and Cash Flow. So there you go, three places. Awesome. All right, Dan, thanks for joining us, man. Thank you to our loyal listeners for dialing in and huge thank you to Orchid Black for making this show possible. We'll see you all later next time. See ya. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt. <laughs>